Hallelujah. I hope I can make it through this week. Ephesians chapter 6, there's a lot to cover. So let's jump right in to the text. We're going to be looking at children and parents, slaves and masters. And of course, the famous chapter here includes spiritual armament. So a lot to cover. I may have to do it in two weeks. Depends how we go. We'll see. I might be able to get through it. But let's jump in. Children, obey your parents in Yahweh. A Greek word there is the kurios. The kurios. Again, we've spent many, many, many times going over the use of kurios and the divine name Yahweh here. Because we see right off the bat, children and parents, their relationship comes into view here. Children, obey your parents in Yahuwah, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. So, Having just emphasized husbands' relationships with wives last week in chapter 5, now we're seeing that Paul is shifting to children and slaves as we get into this portion of the text. And there's many parallel texts in Colossians 3 which will go over the same kind of material. And of course, Colossians was the earlier text than Ephesians that we've already established in our intro. But you'll also see some parallel texts in 1 Peter chapter 2. And even Titus in the second chapter of Titus will go over some of this same communication. You'll find these harmonious verses addressing the same theme. You can look into that in your your own time. But the um, the term children here is the Greek word tekon, or technon, I should say, technon. And in Greek, this addresses the relationship, it's important, the relationship rather than age. Relationship rather than age. And what bearing does that have on anything? It actually has quite a lot, because it means biblically, Children, biblically, children are called to obey their parents regardless of how old they are. So if your children are in their 40s, are they still required to obey their parents? Yes, because we can see right here from the language, the Greek word here, technon, addressing relationship. It's the relationship that requires the obedience. It's not because you're, you're 19 and out the house that you don't have to obey your parents, which is our Western Greco-Roman mind culture. We are of a biblical culture, biblical culture, excuse me, and therefore, regardless of age, children are required to obey their parents. Proverbs, of course, 30 verse 17, the eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. That's a stern warning, isn't it? So with husbands and wives, Paul emphasized equality, but not so here with children. Both parents are to be obeyed. Fathers then are further singled out to be exhorted. 
So both, both parents are to be obeyed, but fathers are further singled out. Fathers need to be exhorted. And I brought this up in um, the last teaching. Verse 2 is extremely problematic for those who advocate the abolishment of Torah. Why on earth would Paul quote from the Torah with the promise of land inheritance... The, the, the commandment with promise, if the Torah, the law, is done away with. That makes no sense. Because if Paul has previously stated, as some would say, that the law is done away with, then why does he make a direct reference to it here? That would be asinine. He's just spent a whole bunch of time instructing his audience not to behave like the nations. And what was their behavior marked by? Lawlessness. He's just spent a whole bunch of time saying, don't be lawless. And now he's quoting the very heart of the law, the commandment with land inheritance promise because he's addressing the scattered tribes in the nations and the regathering of the whole house of Israel. So how do the traditionalists work this out with their theology? Well, the traditionalists, the law is done away with, they try to wiggle out of this glaring problem by saying it's kind of part of some independent law of Christ. Have you ever heard of that? Well, this is part of the independent law of Christ or that mythical monster, the moral law. Well, again, you know, you hear this, but there's no such word in the Bible. It's been made over centuries to try and segregate sections of Scripture, never seeing the biblical distinction of law that Paul is directly quoting from here the book of the covenant. And we already know from Galatians chapter 3 that Paul makes a distinction between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. This is something that we're very familiar with, but theologians are not. Therefore, this is how they try to wiggle out of it. But here Paul quotes the fifth commandment out of the book of the covenant. How can we seriously believe that this has nothing to do with the book of the covenant Torah? Because ultimately, it does, and it has a continuing value in our life today, does it not? And that's why, of course, he's quoting it, because there's no biblical support whatsoever to support that erroneous thinking, especially in light of what we've just read. He's quoting from the Torah with the promise of land inheritance. Let's look at verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of Yahweh. Now, unless you are a parent, you might be wondering, well, how does that happen? Myself as a parent, I have at times seen how this verse can actually come into um, relevance in your life. And you have to step back and go, oh, now, I don't want to provoke my children to wrath. And oftentimes, my wife's had to come and tell me, you know, and quote this verse to me and kind of have to step it down a little bit and then come back at another angle in dealing with children. Because it's very, very important that we understand that children need to be honored. 
We all need to be honored. This is a kingdom of honor, and that's what we need to communicate even to our children. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of Yahuwah. So fathers and children, let's, before we go any further, let's get some cultural perspective. That's very important on the social norms of fathers and children in the Greco-Roman world, because it was very different than obviously what we have today. I want to quote to you from Dionysus in um, Roman Antiquities 2.26, quote, But the lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, even during his whole life, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains and keep him at the fields, at work, or even to put him to death. And this even though the son were already engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the magistrates even, and though he was celebrated for his zeal in the whole commonwealth. Indeed, In virtue of this law, men of distinction, while delivering speeches from the roster, hostile to the Senate and pleasing to the people, having been dragged down from thence and carried away by their fathers to undergo such punishment as these thought fit. And while they were being led away through the forum, none present, neither consul, tribune nor the very populace which was flattered by them and thought all power inferior to its own could rescue them in short in the roman culture even if you were a politician you could be up there at the roster addressing a great audience and your father could come along drag you off and punish you And there would be nothing that anybody could do. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. Wouldn't that have been great for some of our former presidents? They're just yapping it away at the White House press conference. And dad comes along and just literally takes off his belt. I mean, I would like to have seen that, definitely. And I'm up for it, even with some of our producers and directors in Hollywood. Dad comes along. I mean, I think we'd have a lot more... (laughs) you know, things in people behaving the way that they should. But again, this is the culture of Rome. This is the Greco-Roman world. So we forget that. And so Paul is really addressing absolute authority. That's what he's addressing. And he's saying that he doesn't want this kind of absolute authority within the assembly, which of course was in the culture at the time. So the Bible teaches that discipline is to be enacted upon a disobedient child, but again, it's supposed to be balanced so the child doesn't grow up resenting its parents. And that is a balance. And parenting, it is a balance. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it so momentary punishment was supposed to keep a child from eternal punishment 
There's the balance. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not withhold correction from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Of course, I grew up with corporal punishment in my education system. Of course, in America, you can't do that. The children control the teachers. So I don't know how that works, but, you know, we can see the fruit of it. Again, I had a bamboo cane with a lead tip. You know, we'd try to put a wetsuit on to see if we could get away with that under our school uniform, but that didn't work, and when I was discovered with that, there just was more stripes. Anyway, it kind of turned it out to be a badge of honor who got the deepest marks and stripes, and, you know, you were the coolest kid on the block if you could take it. But anyway... Be that as it may. Look at verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart, as unto Moshiach, not with eye service, not as men pleasers, but as the servants of Moshiach, doing the will of Elohim from the heart, with good will, doing service as to Yahweh and not as to men. So we have to treat verses 5 to 7 within their cultural context because you've got to be careful nowadays not to prejudice the text with your 18th century American slavery views and political correctness and oh my goodness I don't want to be a racist, right? I don't know if you heard this week, but one of these universities in America said that um, something about we're looking forward to the campus being white and they had to backtrack from that and issue an apology. It was about they were looking forward to the snow. So now snow can't even be white. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. This university backtracked because you can't even call snow white. This is the world that we live in. So please, let's not prejudice the text with our 18th century American slavery views because it will lead you to conclusions opposite than what Paul indeed intended for us today. Because slavery abounded within the Greco-Roman world. In fact, there were about 60 million, some people say two-thirds, most say up to half of the Greco-Roman world were slaves. That's what he's addressing. Paul was not trying to actively overthrow it either. He was just addressing the reality of the Greco-Roman culture. 1 Corinthians 7.21, were you called as a slave? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. So Paul expected slaves to take their freedom, yes, if the opportunity was presented to them. But he wasn't trying to cause slave revolts either. This is an 18th century theology. And I can't stand it when people insert all of the culture into the text because then you end up 
creating something that is not even meant to be there. There's a time and a season and a place for everything, but this is not the forum for that. So the tension isn't between accepting slavery or abolishing slavery. Of course, that would be the 18th century worldview. It's more akin to realizing the tension between the freedom that we are given in Yahusha and the slavery in which millions were to continue to serve their earthly masters. There's some tension there, isn't there? And Paul is addressing that, the tension of their newfound spiritual freedom. I'm free. I've been born again. I am free juxtaposed with their position that they still found themselves in within the social setting. You'd need some education on how to balance that, wouldn't you? I certainly would. See, Roman masters generally didn't care what gods their, their, their slaves served. They didn't care. They were polytheists. They had households full of gods. This is what Paul's addressing. It was a polytheistic society stooped in superstition. Their conduct and their faithfulness to the one true Elohim is where their true freedom is found. That's what Paul is addressing. Paul follows the Torah commandments where slaves are recognized as people. And yes, they're afforded various rights and rewards. But ultimately, those rights and rewards will not be granted by their earthly masters is the point. Those rights and rewards are granted by Yahuwah. I know that I, I, it, it's just the conversations that I sometimes have with people and they insert so much of their Western garbage and you're like, it doesn't even say that. And the reason I get a little bit vexed about it is because I came out of that in the church mindset and it just really hinders you understanding the Bible. It really does. If we throw all of this stuff at, bomb the text with our culture, then how can we unearth the beauty that is truly just sitting there for us to pick at? But we have to lay down our culture and pick up the biblical culture. And there's the freedom right there. I tell you, it's amazing. See, whether one was a slave or free, equality would be demonstrated by Yahweh, rewarding both according to what? Their good works and their good conduct. So freedom right here with slaves and masters, freedom in Yahusha changes the dynamic of the relationship between master and slave. What happens if both the master and the slave became believers? That would really change the dynamic, wouldn't it? You would really have to work through that. You would really have to work, both attitudes and behavior would be put into totally new light. You'd be coming to work the next day and you'd be like, how do we've got this new... And that was what was happening. That was what was happening. How do you function within this new light, this new relationship? Look at verse 8. knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of Yahuwah, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them. 
Do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now, James chapter 5 comes into view here, does it not? I'll read that to you. Behold, the wages of the workers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester, they have reached the ears of the master of Sabaoth, the master of hosts. That's a very sobering verse. Equality here will be demonstrated and determined by Yahuwah and Yahuwah alone. And I think that's the point that Paul's trying to communicate. Now look at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in Yahuwah and in the power, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of Elohim that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now at this point, I should bring up the difference between exegesis, which is when you're extracting ex, extracting information from what's actually in the text, and eisegesis, where you dump your own thoughts into the text. I need to bring that up because we, as we get into the armor of Elohim, the question arises, well, what is the armor? Is this the armor of a Roman soldier? Or is this the armor of the high priest? Neither. Because both of those views are eisegesis. You are sticking your own thoughts in the text. Now, in traditional Christianity, I was taught... This is the Roman soldier. Isaiah, of course, who talks about this, he would have never have seen a Roman soldier. Then, the Messianic movement then says, Ah, look, let's create a straw man. And now we get into what's called straw man theology. Let's erect a straw man. Isaiah never saw a Roman soldier. Here's the Roman soldier. He's the straw man. Let's now blow the straw man down, which is easy to do because Isaiah never saw a Roman soldier. And then we can resurrect a Levitical high priest. So either way, you've got eisegesis. One is based upon, of course, Greco-Roman theology. It's a Roman soldier. And the other one, very deceptively, uses the Roman soldier as a straw man and then blows him down. And then, because you're looking at that straw man on the floor, they can resurrect a Levitical high priest. And it's the high priest. But both are wrong. But one is way more perilous and deceptive than the other. And I've experienced both. So I hope I can bring the middle ground. And again... What a, what a time that we live in, that there are so many saints that are coming together and we are seeing this middle road that leads to life. But sometimes it does come through hard pressing, doesn't it? Hard pressing of seeing the peril of both sides and now having to walk, oftentimes alone or with few, 
down that middle, middle road that leads to life. So again, traditional Christianity would look at the armor as, of course, a Roman soldier. And the Messianic or Hebrew roots movement would use the Roman soldier as a straw man, blow him down, easy to do, and then erect for you a high priest. But both of these, again, are eisegesis, them inserting their own ideas into the text. In fact, what that happens then when you do something like that, you end up with what's called confirmation bias or inductive reasoning, which is very dangerous when you're reading the scriptures. We do not want to get into confirmation bias or inductive reasoning. We want to be a people that does deductive reasoning totally, totally different standard of education and learning that is safe, it's concrete. That's the way I like to look at the word. So again, we have to be careful. And case in point, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is... (laughs) He says crazy. (laughs) Roman, right? (laughs) Therefore, it loves everything... Roman, therefore it's a Roman soldier's armor that we're talking about, right? Wrong, but that's what happens. Again, even though Martin Luther spent several years in Rome, he was in Rome in, I think, 1510, but he was a Roman Catholic monk, So even though he pulled away from the Catholic universal church, he always always had way more problems with Jews than he did Italians. Therefore, the soldier is still Roman, right? And therefore, that Roman armor has continued on down through the years. Because Martin Luther didn't like the Jews, but he actually didn't quite mind the Italians. Again, you see, this, this is just what you and I are up against. I like to at least try and identify it. So, you know, if you shine the light in the darkness, at least we've got a foundation from which to start. But again, the Messianic movement, on the other hand, they've got a prejudice against everything Greco-Roman. And I know that because, you know, I'd be like, stay, man, you're greeking me out. You start using too much Greek. Now I see the balance because I think, well, the Masoretic text is great, but I rather the weight of the Septuagint, which is Greek because it's from an older Hebrew manuscripts that we don't have today. There's balance for you. I love the Greek now because I understand the Septuagint and its weight that clears up a lot of translation problems that the Masoretic text, which is so much newer, 1,100 years newer or at least, um, doesn't clear up. So again, we have to be careful of these prejudice even in the Messianic movement. I carried over this prejudice against everything Greek and Roman, and you still see that today. Um, and they have a bent towards everything Hebrew, even if it's pagan like gypsy dancing and Hanukkah and Purim. But, you know, it's not Greco-Roman, but that doesn't make it right either. So, again, balance. Most have a bent towards Zionism and the Levitical priesthood in the Hebrew roots movement. So now, of course, the armor makes sense to them to be a Levitical high priest, especially if you've blown down the straw man 
of the Roman soldier armor, which is very easy to do in light of Isaiah, never having seen a um, Roman soldier. So, with all that, what is the armor representing? If it's not the high priest and it's not a Roman soldier, the armor of the heavenly hosts. That's what the prophets are addressing because the prophets would have seen the visions of the throne room, which was the council of the Elohim. And this is what, of course, Isaiah was drawing upon. Yes, he would have seen Babylonians and their armor. Yes, he would have seen Assyrians and their armor. Sure. But as a prophet, the prophet was invited to see the heavenly council of Elohim's in their service. And this is what we are now coming into this principality part of the text. It leads us right there. Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And there's a warning here, isn't there? Devils are going to lead you into the hands of a high priest. Devils are going to lead you into the hand of a temple sacrificial system. And devils are doing all of this by tickling your ears right in plain sight. Right in plain sight. And that is what is so disturbing to me. I go off on a little tangent here. But, you know, just this week we've got Donald Trump finally decided not to sign um, the document that comes upon every president's desk every six months, the waiver of of not moving the... um, the embassy to Jerusalem, and he said, no, I'm not going to sign it, so the, the embassy's going to move to Jerusalem. And now everybody's excited about this. This could possibly be the beginnings of the um, inception of the rebuilding of the temple to Jerusalem. And I just got to thinking, with all the war and everything that we've gone on, it just, just, it just like whacked me right across the face, and I was so saddened. Do you realize that evangelical Christianity has not spoken up at all for this wholesale slaughter of Christians in the Middle East. But they will stand up to defend Ashkenazi Khazars, Jews, who deny the Messiah, yet you have got Christians in Lebanon being slaughtered. Lebanon used to be one of the most Christian places. Syrian Christians being slaughtered. Kurdish Christians being slaughtered. Our brothers and sisters in the, in the face of it being slaughtered. And evangelical Christianity, silent. But you say anything against the Zionist entity of the state of Israel. You say anything against the building of the Temple Mount. And everybody's in an uproar. You would rather defend an antichrist society than Christian Arabs. That's the reality. You would rather defend an antichrist society that hates Yahushua 
that will literally kick you out of the state for 10 years if you cause too much ruckus by praying in Christ's name at the Western Wall. The reality is, you just don't like Arabs. That's the problem. Because you're quiet when Middle Eastern Christians are slaughtered. Nothing. I haven't heard anything over the past five years when we have seen the decimation of Christian Middle Eastern believers. Syria, Bethlehem, Lebanon, Iraq. What's going on? It is a dreadful testimony to being hoodwinked by Theodore Herzl's Zionism and Antichrist globalism. Hoodwinked. Absolutely. And that's something we should just say, Selah. Pause on that for a moment. If that doesn't paint the truth, if that doesn't paint the truth to where we are at and the deception that is truly over the church, the deception, you would literally support those that hate your Messiah and remain silent when Middle Eastern Christians are being wholesale slaughtered. Wow. Amazing to me. Amazing. Just really, really is that we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take up unto you the whole armor of Elohim, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having, having done all, then stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherein ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Ruach, which is the word of Elohim. Again, this is a huge, a huge part of spiritual warfare. That we truly need to, and many of us have gone through this text and literally applied it. You literally dress yourself, not as a Roman soldier, not as the high priest, but this is what I want you to understand. Because if you can understand this, you won't have to get into trying to do a eisegesis with this list of clothing that we used to do in the Christian community. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's time for the saints to truly... Stand. Because if you can stand on the reality of what this is trying to communicate, you won't need to go into a nice eisegesis because you will understand the power of this is talking about the spiritual warfare of Yahweh versus the gods. That's what this is talking about. The spiritual warfare of Yahuwah versus the gods. These rulers and powers in the heavens are, listen, divine beings 
who were once part of Yahweh's divine council. This is the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. There are many Elohim, many gods. And now everybody's freaking out. Oh, Matthew's gone on. He's teaching polytheism. There is one creator, Yahuwah. But he created many Elohim. And Elohim is just the Hebrew word for a disembodied spirit. Psalm 82 verse 1. Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Now the watchers, as Daniel calls them, Daniel 4 verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel 4.13 I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher a holy one descended from heaven. Now you have to understand the Jews of Yahushua's time they knew about this. They knew that there was one creator Elohim Yahuwah but there were many other gods. Many other disembodied spirits that were part of his council. Otherwise, why would have Yahushua said this in John chapter 10, 34? It would have made no sense for him to say this unless the culture that he was addressing fully understood in their theology and worldview that yes, there were many Elohim. Yahushua answered them in John chapter 10, verse 34. Has it not been written in your law, I said you are Elohim? If he called them Elohim, to whom the word of Elohim came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of Elohim? If the Elohim, the gods of Psalm 82, were just human judges and not divine Elohim, divine watchers, then Yahushua's appeal to this text to defend his claim to deity would make no sense, would it? Would make no sense. The Jews wouldn't seek to stone him as a blasphemer if he had just appealed to a text about human judges, would they? Think about it. Yahushua is rebuking the Jews for allowing the existence of Elohim other than the Father, but they wouldn't accept his claim to be Elohim. He is saying hypocrites. And we miss this. Because traditional Christianity is so confused by the Trinitarian doctrine, they don't know what's up from down and left to right, because what's actually happened is really, really disturbing to me. There are many Elohim, but Yahweh is the Elohim 
of Elohim. The singular creator Elohim. The other Elohim are his creation. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17. Now bear with me with this because some of you might be pressing off. Don't because we're going to go through the scripture here. This is extremely important. But you are going to be fighting your culture. You are going to be fighting your theology. You are going to be fighting what's called religious syncretism. And the doctrine, the straw man of Trinitarianism. That we're going to have to now see the truth of scripture. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17. For Yahweh your Elohim is the Elohim of Elohim and the master of masters, the great, the mighty, and the awesome Elohim who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Yahweh just told you he's in charge of all the other Elohim here. You've got a major problem if you don't believe what he's saying. There are many gods. Where do you think all this Marvel comic stuff comes from? Truth originates in the Hebrew Bible. Then it gets exported to the nations. Then it goes into the pantheon and it gets twisted into the Greco and Roman culture. And then the truths get watered down into mysticism and then exported out to the nations. There was and there is going to be a reversal of this doctrine that is even now being produced in Hollywood with Batman and Wonder Woman. You know, Wonder Woman is just code for Dionysus, okay, or or, or the Greco-Roman gods of war. You've got all of this going on right before the people's eyes. It's going to lead into the acceptance of AI technology. And again, people don't even see what's going on before them. But we have to get back to the roots of the scripture to be able to unravel all of this garbage and mysticism before our eyes so that we can see the wood for the trees. I hope we can do that today because our war isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against Harvey Weinstein. That's the flesh and blood that's producing it. It's the principalities behind it over the nations. Our war isn't against Donald Trump, Barack Obama. It's against the principalities that are bringing all this in. Our war isn't against the Secretary of State in whatever state you're in. It's the principalities that are bringing all this forward. We need to raise up a whole what? Battalion of righteous believers that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear to equip the saints in this last generation while the rest are so confused that they'll be going after the Elohim of AI technology. So again, watch out. There are many gods, but only one Yahweh who is the Elohim of Elohim, the creator Elohim. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the peoples according to the sons of God or the sons of Elohim. And this is what we need to understand. Islam teaches singular monotheism. Christianity 
adopted Trinitarianism from the Greek pantheon of polytheism and by employing syncretistic um, theology, it declares this polytheistic divinity as monotheism. But Trinitarianism comes from the Greek pantheon of polytheism and then through syncretism is brought in through the Roman Catholic Church and therefore you have the straw man of Trinitarianism when in reality we need to understand that what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches plural monotheism. That's the difference. Here, O Israel, Yahuwah our Elohim, Yahuwah is Echad, a plural compound unity of one. Not singular monotheism, but plural monotheism. Not polytheism that's been syncretized into Trinitarianism and then served up as monotheism. You may be able to fool the masses, but you can't fool somebody who is immersed in the scripture and understands history and syncretism, which is what our modern day religions are founded on, is syncretism. But Islam, on the other hand, is singular monotheism. That's not scriptural either. Judaism embraces the Shema, but denies the power therewith. So again, we have to be extremely careful in this day and age because the divine council operates on a cosmic level governing the universe under the rulership of the one creator Elohim, Yahuwah. Yahuwah makes decisions and his divine Elohim respond. That's how it works. On an earthly plane, they govern Israel and the nations. I'm talking biblical Israel, not the Zionist creature. They govern biblical Israel and the nations, and on an individual level, they're either guiding and protecting the righteous believers or accusing and hounding men. Because we know that there was a fall. There was a fall from this divine council of Elohim. There was a fall in Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12, 4. It records the fall. One third of this divine council of Elohim that served the one true creator, Yahuwah, one third of them followed their leader who was the Moshiach Cheruv or the Messiah that covers, known as Helel ben Shechar. That's his name, Be'elel ben Shechar, in the Latin Lucifer. Again, this is a lot for some of you to comprehend, but it's true in the scripture, one-third of this divine council fell with the Moshiach Haruv, the chief Elohim of Yahweh's council, who led an adversarial army of Elohim to rebel against Yahweh. The adversarial Elohim or Satan's now influenced the nations. They became the gods of the nations. 
adversaries against man and adversaries against the nations. They are Satan's. There isn't one Satan. Satan is a title. It means the adversary, the adversaries. There are many Satans, but the chief adversary, he has a name. So this whole idea, the devil, Satan, like there's one. No, all of the fallen Elohim from the divine council are adversaries. They are Satan's plural. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that there is one identified by name who is their leader of the divine council that fell, and his name is Helel ben Shechar, which means crescent moon, son of the morning, who we commonly call Satan. But in reality, there's a whole fallen council of Satan's fallen Elohim from the divine council. In fact, for your information, Isaiah 14.12 is actually, this is really scary, Isaiah 14.12, and Islam doesn't even realize this because they're so deceived, Isaiah 14.12 is actually Muhammad's night vision. It's a record of Muhammad's night vision. And Islam doesn't even understand this. Lucifer, the crescent moon, son of the morning, as he's named here, as an Elohim, a disembodied bodied spirit of light, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. He took Muhammad on the night vision. Islam doesn't even understand the roots from the tree that it grows. Because Ramadan, Ramadan, people don't understand this. Ramadan is actually a celebration of Muhammad's encounter with Lucifer, where Muslims fast at the appearing of the crescent moon with Venus, the day star, which is the symbol of Lucifer. It's the symbol of Islam. It's the symbol of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, I'm going home. I mean, really, I mean, can you see the world that we're living in today? And people are just blinded by the Ruach will give us all truth. It's the Ruach and truth. But we have to look. It's all right here within this this wonderful, I love the smell of the word. It's like sweet Shabbat challah bread. Mine's got a lot of frankincense and myrrh on it as well. But it truly is. And people don't understand. This is Isaiah. This is the roots of Islam, Isaiah 14. And we, you, you guys are from Iraq, is that correct? And they're nodding in the background. Because they know that this is true. This is amazing. Iraqi believers in our midst. Praise Yahweh. What a testimony. What a testimony you sisters are. That just awesome. You must come back. But the problem of ancient Israel has always been the same, has it not? And that's the problem of us today. Just like ancient Israel today, we find the nations, what? Worshipping the inferior sons of Elohim. They worship the heavenly host as they're called under the leadership of Lucifer, which is Latin for Halel ben Shekhar. Halel ben Shekhar 
the title of Lucifer, his name, the chief Elohim that fell from Yahweh's divine counsel. Crescent moon, son of the morning, is his name in the English. And if that doesn't tell you who our war is against, it's not flesh and blood, but principalities. Principalities. There is a heavenly council, and there is a hellish council since the fall. One led by Yahweh, and one led by the crescent moon, son of the morning, also known as Lucifer. And there are many Satans, many Satans over the nations. I have to pause on that. I'm blowing my own mind. And I know this stuff, but it's very sobering when you start to realize we are dealing with spiritual warfare. It's not what's in front of my face, but behind the curtain, right? So the nations that we now live in, they actually have their own gods who are mortal, but they don't have Yahuwah, who alone is immortal and who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The title, Yahuwah Savah, Yahuwah Savah means Yahuwah of hosts, and it reflects Yahuwah's rulership over the created Elohim. These armies refer to celestial battalions. Think about it. We have celestial battalions belonging to the creator that we can call upon if we just natsab, stand. That's the first piece of our armor, is to natsab, is to stand. In fact, the prophets, Jeremiah, Micah, for instance, they both had access to this divine council when it was actually running And in session, can you imagine that? You actually get to go into the throne room where Yahuwah is presiding, sitting on his throne with all of these Elohim all around him and he is holding a council meeting. He's holding parliament, if you will. And the prophets, they got to see this. How awesome would that be? Throne visions... The purpose of giving the prophets a message to announce to the people. They would get admission into the divine council chambers. That was one criterion for being a true prophet, that you actually got admission into the divine council meetings. Think about Isaiah now and how he viewed the armor. It was because he got to see that divine council and them in their armorous splendor. Jeremiah 23, verse 18. But who has stood in the counsel of Yahuwah that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? How about Second Chronicles chapter 18, verse 18? This is an amazing account. This is about Micah. Micah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahuwah. I saw Yahuwah sitting on a throne 
And all the host of heaven standing on his right and standing on his left. Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and to fall at Ramoth Gilead? You have to understand, oftentimes, you know, especially in England, a lot of the way that we get our procedures and our politics and with how we address royalty in England, it actually comes from the Bible. So when the prime minister goes and visits the queen for those weekly meetings, the queen actually doesn't stand to greet the prime minister. The queen would remain seated and the prime minister then would stand before her. So in what we see in kingdom mentality, in that kind of mentality, what we see is the rulership remains upon the throne and the lesser remains standard. And that's exactly what we see right here. This is spiritual authority at work in the council. Yahweh said right here, as he was sitting on his throne and the host of heaven, the Elohim are standing on his right and standing on his left. Yahweh said, who will go and entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a Ruach came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said, how? And he said, I will go and be a deceiving Ruach in the mouth of all of his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, Yahuwah has put a deceiving Ruach in the mouth of these your prophets. For Yahuwah has proclaimed disaster against you. This is one of those council meeting sessions. Look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 19. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven. That's the divine council. And be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your Elohim has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So, what's the problem with Islam? It's based upon the night visions of Isaiah 14. Islam worships what? A fallen Elohim. What's the problem with the religions of the the Far East? Hinduism. And there are many, many, many millions of gods. Again, these are the fallen Elohim, the disenfranchised spirits that now are over the nations. Why do you think this nation, America, has so much Elohim architecture. It's the worship of what? The Elohim that are over this nation. And as we saw in the scriptures, the boundaries of the nations are established according to the sons of Elohim and how many they can house. We've just imported everything in these last century to this land. And now we are bearing the fruit of that hellish, hellish allegiance, are we not? We're seeing it in our politics, we're seeing it in our pictures, and we're seeing it in the face of the people. So again, we must beware of the days that we are in, because the host of heaven refers to the sentient, created spiritual beings which reside within the heavens. 
Some of them fallen and some of them still loyal to Elohim. So when we go to war, we call on the battalions of those divine Elohim to come to our stand with us. We have huge resources at our hands, but we have to understand this because if we can just not sab stand, then we can truly enter into the battle because we know that we have literally the servants, the other Elohim, servants of Yahuwah at our very, very disposal. These hosts of heaven have been allotted to each and every one of us. They've been allotted to the peoples. The word allotted in the Hebrews, the Hebrew word halak, it literally means apportioned or they've been assigned to you. You know, you've heard about guardian angels. How about guardian Elohim? Now we've stepped it up a level, right? We're told that Yahuwah has assigned the host of heaven to the peoples of the earth. The peoples of the earth. These hosts of heaven are the same rulers, powers, world forces, and spiritual forces in heavenly places, which Paul speaks of in our text here in Ephesians. Yahweh allotted even watchers to influence the nations, and haven't they influenced the nations? In Job 38, verse 7, it is written, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of Elohim shouted, for joy. Of course, these morning stars and sons of Elohim are the names of the divine council members. But don't be afraid. This can be kind of, oh, this is scary. But don't be afraid because Yahweh alone, Yahweh alone is sovereign. He is the sovereign creator of all things. And that gives me comfort, including the lesser deities. Yes, he created those Elohim. Yahweh alone is the one who has immortality. Those other Elohim, they are mortal. They are mortal, disenfranchised, and disembodied spirits. Timothy said of Yahushua, he alone has immortality, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal Dominion. That's First Timothy chapter six, verse sixteen. But these lesser Elohim, these lesser deities, they often called the Watchers. They're going to be judged. They will be judged by Yahweh. Psalms eighty-two, verse six said, "I said, you are Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die, and you shall fall like any prince." So we just have to understand. The distinction of Elohim. So our spiritual armor is there to aid us. That's what Paul's communicating. Our spiritual armor is there to aid us as Malkitzedic Kohanim, as Malkitzedic priests, to go and reclaim. We have a job to do to go and reclaim the 70 disinherited nations. That's why the message began with the 70 disciples. 
Because the nations, the 70 nations, have been disinherited. They've been given over to the Elohim. The Elohim influenced them under the leadership of the what? Lucifer. But they are actually many Satans out there. And henceforth today, we are at this pinnacle, this zenith of seeing all of that bad fruit fermenting. And we're in an age where the lack of understanding, the lack of biblical wisdom abounds even in so-called believing circles that we've got all of this straw man theology being popped up, blown over, and people aren't searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. And these are perilous times, especially with the creation of the lesser Elohim of AI technology and don't don't think that an Elohim isn't behind that behind that of course and this is what we are being prepared for and it should spook you out if you've got eyes to see but not so much that fear and trembling because we understand that they will be judged Paul is really saying it's time to armor up Get your tack gear on and armor up. Because we're not struggling against human beings here. We are struggling against the unseen agents of the adversaries, the Satans. Under their ruler, Lucifer, Isaiah 14. And our biggest challenge today is those that adhere to Muhammad's night vision, which is Isaiah 14. Because they are following, of course, one of those Elohim and making a huge impact on the geopolitical landscape. There's eight articles of armor. Eight articles of armor. The first and the most important one. And if we can understand this, then it truly makes everything else flow so much easier. Is to stand. The Hebrew word there is natsab. Natsab. And it is a um, natsab. It means you are appointed. This is what it literally means. Natsab. You are appointed as an officer of Yahuwah. Able to petition Yahuwah and his council of Elohim for assistance. And they will, in turn, set you up as a pillar and a sharp boundary that will tear into the enemy. That's what it literally means. Literally. If you do a word study on Natsab, it means you are appointed as an officer of Yahweh, able to petition Yahweh and his counsel for assistance, and that they'll in turn set you up as a pillar that'll tear a sharp boundary into the other adversarial Elohim. This is all based upon that heavenly counsel visions that we're seeing. So the first thing is to stand and to understand what we're dealing with here. Because everything else will follow. Of course, we know that the belt of truth means that we're just to be girded with the word of Elohim. Exodus 12, 11 is our source text here. Of course, when you ate of the Passover, you come to the feast of Yahweh. The first things first is that you would be in that house. You would be covered by the blood of the, blood of the lamb. And that you would lead with, leave with your what? 
belt of truth girded around you before you could even go and receive the commandments of Yahuwah. Number two, number three, excuse me, we need to have the shoes of shalom. That's the preparation of the gospel. Isaiah 52 verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So the gospel wasn't invented in the New Testament era. Isaiah having visions of these principalities. The good news is the victory that we get over these principalities. Isaiah was invited to see what goes on in the heavenly council as a prophet would and knows that that gospel is our victory in these end days. Number four, the breastplate of righteousness. Isaiah again, 59 verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, salvation as a helmet on his head. He clothed himself with garments of vengeance and he wrapped himself in a mantle of zeal. Amen. Number five, we've got the shield of faith. Of course, this was, this was a large shield. It wasn't like a little shield. This was a large shield that covered the entire person. Of course, this is functioning holy. This is talking about the believer functioning holy. Spirit, soul, and body all functioning as they should in full battle array, in covering the whole person. If a person is acting just in the carnal flesh, do they have on the shield of faith? No. If they're in a solical realm, just acting upon their soul, are they, do they have the armor of? And many people over the years in ministry, I know Andrea said this, have said it's like, like I have this guard on me, this armor on me. And it's truly, I believe, by being in the word and having this shield of faith that we are to be if we're immersed and this is our life, then it's natural that you start to order yourself according to the scriptures. I mess up just like we all do, but we understand that he starts to change our mind that then affects our flesh, that then the spirit empowers and equips that. And that's what it's talking about. That shield of faith covers the entire person. They are functioning properly in line, spirit first, then soul, then the body. The helmet of salvation is the sixth, the sixth article of, of armor here, Isaiah 59 verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, salvation as a helmet on his head. He clothed himself with garments of vengeance and he wrapped himself in a mantle of zeal. The seventh, of course, is the sword of the Ruach, the sword of the Spirit. This is speak, speaking of that word, that word of Yahweh, or the, the rhema word, the spoken word of Yahweh, that when it's uttered, it pierces the darkness. It defeats the adversarial counsel of fallen Elohim. It's an offensive weapon. When we speak Scripture, I love to pray Scripture. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons that we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. I demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Elohim. And I take captive every thought of mine. 
and hold it obedient to Yahushua HaMashiach. And then I go and do what I need to do. I can't tell you how many times a day I pray that in all circumstances, in all things. And it changes the atmosphere. Man, does it change the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere because you're recognizing the power of Yahuwah in your life and then that brings you out of your flesh, brings you out of your soul and it brings you right where you need to be able to do the work. And finally, of course, we understand number eight. It's intercessory prayer. That is more offensive weaponry that Paul is equipping us with, coupled with the word. It cannot be halted. Pray the word. That's the ultimate Belial bomb, isn't it? I mean, that just takes out the Elohim, the Belial bomb. Take that. I mean, amazing. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me. That I may open up my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in bonds. That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But thee also... May know my affairs and how I do. O Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in Yahweh, shall make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your levim, your hearts. Peace, shalom be to the brethren and love with faith. From Elohim, the father of our master, Yahusha HaMashiach, grace be to you and to all them that love our Yahweh, Yahusha HaMashiach, in sincerity. Amen. And this to me is a powerful, powerful way to close this absolute scriptural message that gives us an understanding of where we are today because a man's method of sinning is Satan's method of ruining his soul. We have to be aware. We have to be aware. We have to take the Beatitudes and live them daily. It's not just what we do. It is the renewing of our mind. It's what we think, what we look at, what we listen to. It isn't just what we actually do. It's what you're thinking about doing or thought about doing, even just for a fraction of a second. So we have to do the deep work. This is a deep cleansing. And you'd all say, wow, because truly this brings the whole message to fruition. So this closes Ephesians chapter 6, except I was called on the carpet this week. I forgot to finish Ephesians 4, was it? Was it five? Five. Four? It was four. I, I totally did. But then I was too embarrassed to go back. But it's true. So I will continue on with Ephesians and finish chapter four because a few people have questioned me and I just kind of brushed it off. 
But the reality is I was embarrassed, I did forget, and I just kept on soldiering on. So we'll give that a going over next week. I believe it was the last section of Ephesians 4, right? So anyway, we'll look at that next week and we'll do a close of Ephesians and just pray that Yahweh bless our time in the Word. Do we have questions um, at all? I have seen a microphone up in the back. Yes. Uh, we do have one. Only that one. Is, That's good. Uh, the question is the mystery of the gospel um, in verse 19. What is the mystery of the gospel? What is the mystery of the gospel? The mystery of the good message is that Yahushua has brought about the new covenant and brought back into full adherence and running the Malkitzedic priesthood, a return to the book of the covenant and the empowerment of the saints and the regathering of the whole house of Israel. We have to understand that the Torah is a division of the book of the law not for us, and the book of the covenant empowered with the very Malkitzedic priesthood so that we can go out and do and deliver this message to the nations that are under the very, very control of these fallen Elohim. And that's even a mystery to them. But the greatest mystery is the new covenant has been given as Torah based upon better promises, Hebrews chapter 8. So powerful stuff, great question though. I think so much of us and so many of us have spent time in the Word this week that it truly, to me, just to be able to get through this text, I didn't know if I'd even be able to do it in one setting, is a testament to the Ruach being able to bring forth bring forth this in these days. Because I have read Ephesians 6 so many times, as I'm sure you have, and I didn't even see this here. So I praise Praise Yah for growing us all up in his due time. Amen. So, Abba, we thank you for this time. We pray your brachot, your blessing upon us, and ask, Abba, that you would keep us safe, keep our, our children safe, and, Abba, we ask that you would bring us back here each and every Shabbat until it is your time, Abba, to do the next great thing in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.